welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning service of Sunday the 9th of February 2014, entitled, The Motive for the Miracle. And the Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. All right, let me invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy word as we begin our reading in Matthew chapter 17 beginning in verse 24. Matthew 17, verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. When he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and for thee. Father, we thank you again this morning for this time that we have to look into your word. Father, we pray now that as we look at these verses, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to hearts because, Lord, we know, Lord, that you see within each and every heart that is here this morning, you know the needs that are there. Lord, you know exactly what needs to be spoken and how it needs to be spoken. So, Father, we pray that you would do your work amongst us. We'll give you all the praise, all the glory for it. We'll say in Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Miracles, though controversial amongst some people, certainly something that is exciting to most. Of course, some do not believe that the miracles that are recorded in God's Word uh, were real. Uh, they think they're just stories, allegories, something that is there that... Uh, wasn't meant to be accepted as something that took place in real life. And of course, some would certainly believe that, that God is not a worker of miracles in our day. Well, God has worked in different ways at different times, and undoubtedly, uh, during the a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament when Jesus Christ was setting up his church and when he chose those 12 to be the foundation of that church in those early days. Certainly miracles is one of the things that God used to be able to show the power that was present while his word was still being recorded for you and I. So yes, they were more of a norm then than they would be now. But I'm a firm believer that God is still God. He still holds the power of the universe. He is still sovereign over everything that is. He is still omniscient and knowing everything that has been, that is, and that will ever be. And our God is still a miracle-working God. He can and does perform that that is beyond man's power, that is beyond man's control. Well, I want us today to look at one of these miracles that is recorded for us here that we've just read about in God's Word. And it's interesting as we look because 
at least seven of the miracles they're recording in Scripture somehow relate to this guy called Peter. Uh, now, we might draw all kind of conclusions of that, why that uh, that is, but, uh, uh, but nonetheless, at least seven of them. The first is recorded in Luke chapter 4 where we find that Jesus went into the house. And when he got there, Matthew's mother-in-law was sick. And we find that Jesus healed his mother-in-law there in the home. We find him at twice when miracles were performed that had to do with great catches of fish. The first one recorded in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 to 10, is a time that not long after the miracle that Jesus had performed with Matthew's mother-in-law, we find here that Matthew was there and Peter and James and John and we find that, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, Peter was there with James and, and, and John. And, and of course, Peter, uh, as was recorded there, uh, they were out there and they were fishing and they'd been fishing all night and they'd caught absolutely nothing whatsoever. And so we find that the Bible teaches us that Jesus told them just to cast their nets. And uh, they caught so many fish that the boat began to sink because that there were so many. So Peter's mother-in-law was healed in his home, and then he was there when uh, God brought in this great fish. And then, of course, right at the end, after the resurrection, we find uh, Peter and the apostles present again. It was the third time that Jesus appeared to them, and they decided to, uh, to go fishing. But they weren't having much luck. Jesus was on the shore, and he told them to cast their net on the right-hand side of the boat. The Bible says they did, and those nets were filled. Do you know then they knew who it was on the shore? <laughs> when he told them to cast those nets and those nets were filled, they knew who it was, and they headed to the shore where Jesus already had fish cooking over the fire for them to enjoy together. Of course, one of the most popular miracles involving Peter was found in Matthew chapter 14 when that uh, he stepped out of the boat Jesus said to walk to him, to come to him on the water. And Peter began to walk on the water. Then he got his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to notice all the, the storm and the waves and all this, and he began to sink. <laughs> but we find this miraculous event. Some think it was just rocks underneath the water, but walking on water is nothing for our God. Peter was there when that miracle was performed. We find that Peter is also the one that... In his eagerness there in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before that Jesus was to be taken off when the guards had come to take him away, Peter pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the guards in his effort to stand up and to protect Jesus. And of course, Jesus touched, placed that ear back in place. He was healed and he was touched. We find that after Jesus had returned to heaven, the early church had begun its ministry, and Peter got locked away in prison for the messages that he was preaching for our Lord. The church began to pray. While they were still praying, Peter came knocking on the door. We find that he was miraculously freed from that prison 
And then, of course, we have this one other account that we read here in our reading today, the coin in the fish's mouth. Uh, why was this miracle performed, do you think? What does this miracle teach us? Uh, what can we take away from this miraculous event that would be of any help to us today? Well, I want us to consider a couple of things. First of all, I want you to consider the concern on the mind. First of all, the concern on the mind of this one called Peter. You see, Peter's concerns began, the Bible says, and when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? That's when Peter's concerns began. This tribute that is being talked about here was, in fact, the uh, temple tax that was collected uh, every year specifically for the upkeep of the temple there in Jerusalem. It was half a shekel. Half a shekel was, they would say, apparently equivalent to somewhere around two days' wages for the average person today. And it was something that was payable by every male that was over the age of 20 years old. So those that were collecting the temple tax, they come to Peter and said, doesn't your master pay this tribute, this temple tax? Without hesitation. We notice that the Bible says in verse 25, he saith yes. That's all he said. They asked him, does your master pay this? Yes. He does. But I wonder what was going through Peter's mind. Was he wondering about this? Did he actually know for a fact that Jesus paid the tribute tax? Or was he just jumping out there to defend him? Was he maybe worried about, oh, no, now I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to be caught for tax evasion. They're going to get me for, for defrauding the authorities. Maybe he was worried about an investigation. <laughs> Most of us don't fear many things in life, much more than the tax man coming to investigate all of our, our details and all of those things. Maybe he was worrying about some punishment that might come. Or was his concern really just for Jesus' honor? How dare they accuse Jesus of doing anything wrong? Well, it's not a bad concern to have, to stand up for the honor of our Lord. I thought when I read that, wouldn't it be wonderful if all the saints of God that are here today were that concerned about people saying or doing anything that would cause others to esteem Christ in a less way? There's a lot of things we don't know. We don't know. We just know that he was asked this question. We do know that he was concerned. We do know that he was concerned enough because notice immediately, as soon as he said yes, the Bible says, and when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him saying. Immediately, when he was coming to the house, immediately Peter went straight to where Jesus was at when he was asked about this. We do know that. We do know that Jesus knew exactly 
the concern that was on the mind of Peter even before he spoke a word. They asked Peter, does your master pay this tribute? Peter says, yes. He goes immediately to where Jesus was, and the Bible says Jesus prevented him. You see, Jesus knew. This word here could also be translated anticipated. Jesus knew in anticipating what was coming, he immediately spoke before Peter even had the chance to say one word. Jesus knows every thought. Jesus knows all of our concerns even before they're mentioned. Nothing escapes him. We need to go to him with our concerns just as, as Peter did here. But the beauty is that he already knows. Not only knows about them, he already understands our concerns. And he always, already has the answer even before we ask the question. We do know that Jesus speaks to Peter. And he speaks to Peter's concerns and he challenges him if you would, to consider what was on his mind. You see, the Bible goes on to tell us here, Jesus prevented him saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? Simon, what are you thinking? What's on your mind? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? When you look at the powers and the authorities of this earth, does the king go out and, and collect his taxes from his own children, those within his own household? Or does he collect the taxes from those outside? Well, Peter had to consider this, and Peter answered him in verse 26. He says, Peter saith unto him, of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. You see, we not only know in this text, we not only know the concern on the mind of Peter, but we know the concern on the mind of our Lord as well. Peter, who would the kings and the people in authority collect taxes from? Their own household, their own children? Well, those outside, well, those outside, well, okay. Well, then, Peter, the children are free. The children aren't obligated to pay those taxes. But of course, what Jesus was really saying to him here is that, Peter, I'm not required to pay that tax. We're talking about the temple. We're talking about God's temple. I am the Son of God. It's not me that the tribute would be charged to because I'm the son of the king. Jesus' concern was not about something that, oh, I've forgotten, to, I've forgotten to pay this tax. I've overlooked it. It wasn't even about something that was required of him in the first place. And he's making that clear to Peter to ease the concerns on his mind. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. Jesus never did anything wrong. Kings don't collect these taxes from their sons. Therefore, technically, Jesus, as God's own son, wasn't obligated. The concern on the mind of Christ was not one of obligation, but 
It was rather one of a concern of offending someone else. What does he say there in the next verse? Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Peter, you got to realize and recognize the tax that's being collected at the temple, it would not be required of me. I'm not required to pay that tax. It's not something that is an obligation upon me, but nevertheless, lest we should offend them. Peter, even though this is not out of obligation or requirement, so that we don't offend them, here's what I want you to do. You see, as Christ followers today, how often, as with our Lord here, are the concerns of our minds such that we're willing to do or not do whatever it is that we do for the sake of offending someone else rather than whether it's actually technically necessary. As we keep in mind the concerns on the mind of both Peter and of our Lord, as we take from that what we can in recognizing in the midst of all this that in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ, his concern was for others. And it wasn't like one of the miracles where somebody was sick or even dead. Some may say, well, this miracle wasn't all that important. His concern was simply that they would not be offended. He would do something that he didn't have to do because he cared about whether they were offended or not. So we learned some things from the concerns on the mind of Peter and our Lord. But next, I think we can learn some things from it, not only as we look at the concerns on the mind, but the coin in the mouth. You see, there's always, always, as I said earlier, going to be critics when it comes to miracles. Whether it's one that's recorded in God's Word or whether it's one that is received in our own lives. Some would even debate on this miracle here as to just how miraculous that it really was for a fish to have a coin in its mouth. I mean, that's something that could just happen naturally. And apparently it was not an uncommon thing because if what I read is true, I've not been there and, and been in the Sea of Galilee and experienced this myself, but if what I read is true, there are actually fish there that it is their natural habit that they actually have these, these, these big mouths that, that go way down, and that's where they, they keep all of their, their baby fish until they're old enough and strong enough to, to, to swim out and, and, and to make their own way. And so some would say, well, you know, this could have just been something that just happened naturally. Did Jesus, did Jesus actually need to? Did he put the corn in that fish's mouth, or was it already there? Well, I would ask you another question, and I would ask it of those critics. What difference 
does it really make? You see, if there was a fish swimming around there in that water, and he just happened to have a coin in his mouth that he had picked up off the bottom of that sea somewhere, and if God could just use that fish that already had the coin in his mouth, fine, there's nothing wrong with that. If he had to put it there, if he had to put the fish there, if he had to put the coin there, if he had to put the two of them there together, well, that's not a problem. Not for God. I mean, he is, as we said, he's got all the power. He's the one that's in control. The truth remains that God supplied in a miraculous way. You see, Peter was given specific instructions from our Lord that he had to believe by faith and he had to act upon in order for this to happen. What does he go on to say? Peter, he said, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go. Go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. Take that and give unto them for me and thee. You see, Peter had to act. <clears throat> and he had to do so by faith. I mean, the Lord knew and the Lord told him that he would catch a fish if he just went through his hook in there. Sometimes, for fishermen like me, that in itself is enough of a miracle just to catch a fish out there. But Jesus knew Peter was going to catch a fish. And I suppose that as Jesus sent him out there to, to catch this fish, we also know that he not only knew there was a fish there and that Peter was going to catch it, but he knew that the coin would be in that fish's mouth and that it would be the very first fish that Peter caught. He also knew that the coin that happened to be in that fish's mouth, which Peter happened to catch and be the very first one, was going to be of sufficient value to pay the tax for Jesus and for Peter both. Now, there's a lot of other details that we could discuss about this miracle, but I think that should suffice us to agree that this was a miraculous happening on many fronts, and it really has absolutely nothing to do with whether that fish was able and possibly could have already had a coin in his mouth, because there's too many other things here that go to show us whether or not Jesus used, sometimes God does use people and things that are already in place to perform the miraculous. Sometimes he puts the people there and the things there. In either case, we see a wonderful, miraculous thing taking place. Now, just as we could learn and take away some valuable things from the concerns that were on their mind, what can we gain from this coin in the mouth of this fish? Well, one thing that we see that the coin in the mouth teaches us that sometimes might be overlooked is the poverty of Jesus Christ, the poverty of our Savior. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that 
though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Sometimes we forget Jesus, the God of the universe, came to this earth to live in poverty. We complain. The Christians, especially in the, the West today, Jesus certainly knew nothing of the affluence of most Christians that live around you and I today. Matter of fact, I had another thought as I was reading that, and I thought, you know, how do we treat most of the homeless people that we come across. What's your reaction when you see somebody that's homeless? Most of the time it's to avoid them. It's to maybe get to the other side or to suddenly become busy paying something else so you don't have to look at them. You see, the truth is, folks, Jesus was homeless. Jesus depended on the homes of others, even to lay down his head. Not because he had to be, because he chose to leave all the riches of glory and to come to this earth and to be poor and to live in poverty so that you could have the greatest riches of all. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, the foxes have holes. They've got somewhere to lay down and, and, and to sleep and to take their rest. The birds of the air have nest, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You see, we kind of try to let those things get to the back of our minds sometimes. We know from our text that Jesus didn't have the half shekel needed to pay the temple tax. Some say, well, why didn't Judas have it in the, in the treasury bag? Well, we don't know. We do know that the Lord obviously either could not or would not use that. Maybe it was because he, he didn't want to use the alms that had been given for, for his disciples. Maybe that there simply wasn't enough there. All we could do is speculate. What we know is that when it came time to pay that tax, Jesus didn't have a half shekel to use for that. We do know that neither Jesus nor his disciples had very much in this life. And what they did have was clearly used wisely and carefully. So in this case, when it came time to pay this temple tax, Jesus didn't have it laying around just to reach in his pocket and hand out he chose to provide for it miraculously, and that's what he did. You see, the corn in the mouth reminds us of the poverty of our Lord. But we can also see not only the poverty of Christ in this miracle, we can just as clearly see at the other extreme the power of Christ. You see, through this miracle, we see both the deity of Jesus Christ the man that was 100% God, and yet the humanity of Christ, the man that was 100% man, we see them so closely associated. The deity in this miracle 
has seen in the power to bring about this unique providing of the coin in order to pay this tribute. We certainly see in humanity <laughs> the paying of the tribute. As God's son, it wasn't required. I can promise you there aren't many things that are more human than paying your taxes. <laughs> they say there's two certainties in life, death and taxes. We see Jesus as a man paying those taxes at the temple. We see him as God providing in such a miraculous fashion. You see, man can do magic. Man can do a lot of masterful and meaningful things. But a true miracle cannot be attributed to man. A miracle is not something that man can do. We see the power of Christ manifested clearly in this miracle. It's too complex for just a, an accident or a coincidence. It's too difficult for some human to arrange it and to manage it. It can't be accredited to mere chance unless you've got a loose screw or something. You see, there's only one possible explanation. It demands the power of God. The coin in the mouth, it affirms the poverty of Christ, but just as assuredly the power of Christ. And it allows us to see something else, the precepts of Christ. I think it's very interesting. I think it should also be very instructive to note the prudence of Christ's miracles. He didn't go around just trying to show off, you know, hey, hey, you know, throwing this thing out there and that thing out there. He didn't do supernaturally what could be done humanly. You see, in this account, humanly, Peter had to go fishing. Now, why didn't Jesus just say, okay, here's the coin, Peter, go have it. Here it is, Peter. No, Peter was going to be involved in this. Peter was going to be required to go fishing. Christ was going to provide, provide in a miraculous way. He could have done it just as easily right there where he was standing at that point as to make Peter go out there and go fishing for it. But you see, that wouldn't have required any faith on Peter's part. It wouldn't have required any involvement on Peter's part whatsoever had Jesus done that. But in the way he did it, it was going to require both faith and obedience by Peter for it to happen. Peter, he just, I guess Christ wouldn't do miraculously what Peter could do himself. Put down a note that God doesn't work miracles for the purpose of letting us be lazy. He doesn't do these things just so that he can make lazy Christians out of us because we can just sit back and let him snap his finger, let him speak the words, and it's done. Peter acted by faith. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only place that you'll find in the New Testament where a hook is used 
to catch a fish. What are they always using to catch fish with? Nets. You know, I kind of wondered about that. Well, you know, why? You know, why is this one different? Well, I've read. I haven't been there and tried it. But I've read that fish are very, very difficult to catch in these waters with a hook. The common practice is always to fish with nets because there's so much natural food in the Sea of Galilee that bait on a hook just isn't that enticing to the fish to attract them in to bite on it. But yet, though they would normally go out there with a net to catch these fish, Peter asks no questions when God says, go out there with a hook and throw the hook in, and the first fish you bring out is going to have this coin in his mouth. The songwriter put it so well in a hymn that we're going to sing a few verses of in shortly, and that's trust and obey. Trust and obey. Jesus is saying, this is what you need to do, and this is what's going to happen. If you'll just do it. You see, miracles happen when God says so, not man. This miracle happened because Jesus said it would. God works in conjunction with his commands and with his promises in his will. Question is never whether we want it. We demand it. We expect it. It's whether God wants it. It's whether God provides it. What he says he will do, he will do. What he says will be, will be. We must believe. We must trust and obey. The concerns on their minds, the coin in the mouth. But I don't want to draw your attention to one final point, the challenge in the message. The challenge in the message. You see, according to God's Word itself, everything in God's Word is a message to us and profitable for us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You see, God's faithfulness is never in question. He teaches that to us all through His Word here. He uses the temple tribute, the miraculous way that he provided for it to teach us truths that we need to know. What he did went far beyond just paying the tax that day. It's recorded in God's Word for you and I to take and read for all the Christians through the ages to take and to read and to gain truth from it. Why did God give it to us? What is the challenge he presents us with. He gives us truths to learn and to build our faith by. I ask you this, how great is his claim? How great is the claim that he makes right here? When he's 
asking Peter that simple question, Peter, who's the king going to charge tribute of? His own children or those others? You see, if the princes of a royal household, if they're exempt from the taxation that's demanded by their father, then the prince of heaven couldn't be expected to do as what was being suggested to him. The temple was his father's house. And therefore, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, shouldn't be taxed to take care of his father's own house. Well, guess what? I'm a son today. I'm a son to the same one that this tribute was paid. A son of God. And therefore, I also have the freedom that Jesus was talking about, then are the children free. You and I are free today. You see, thank God, we're not required to pay anything because Jesus paid it all. You can't pay for your salvation. You can't pay your way into heaven. You can't pay your way into God's good book. We don't do to be saved. We do because we're saved. We're not obligated to the Old Testament laws for our salvation, thank God, for by grace are you saved through faith. But we honor God's law because they're our guide to the holiness that requires us to be like him, to be holy as he is holy. How great the claim that Jesus makes here in those simple words, then are the children free. How great is his concern in those simple words, lest we should offend. I remind you, Jesus didn't have to pay this tax, but he did anyway. He was waiving the exercise of his legitimate right so that he might not offend someone else. When right and wrong were not the issue, Christ gave up his rights in order that he may not needlessly upset somebody else. You see, there was no legal compulsion on Christ to pay the tribute, but he did pay it anyway. The word offend here means to place an obstacle in one's path, to cause him to slip, to stumble, or to slide. That's simple enough, isn't it? As Christians, we must never use our freedom, our freedom that we have in Christ, in order to hurt or destroy someone else. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Yes, you've got liberties in Christ. But he says, be careful. Be careful not to allow those liberties to be a stumbling block to someone else. Romans chapter 14 verse 13 says this, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. 
But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. A few verses later, Romans 14, 21, a verse that God specifically, as clear and as loud and as real as if he had been standing there face to face in the flesh and the body of Christ, used to speak to me about some things in my life when he says, it is good neither to eat flesh, to eat meat, he's talking about there, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Even when it comes down to what we eat and drink, those natural things that we do every day, you know, you got freedoms. You got liberties. You're not going to go to hell because you do those things if you're saved. But the Bible continually, Jesus is showing us here in this miracle. Everything that he's doing, he's doing it just for the sake of not offending someone else. He's not doing something that he had to do. He's doing it because of his concern for others. And we're taught that same thing. Yes, you got your liberties. Yes, you got your freedom. But is that that you're doing, that you're claiming your liberty? This is my right. This is my liberty as a Christian. I will do it if I want to. Is that what you're doing for your satisfaction? Is it something that could be a stumbling block or an offense to someone else? I've been working on a sermon for some time, and, you know, some of you might want to run and stay away, but God willing, in the near future, we're going to be looking at all, I mean all that the Bible has to say about this matter of Christians and strong drink and wine that's mentioned here. But this is the very verse that God used to speak to me when I was arguing with him that, you know, this was okay. As a Christian, you know, I could have this drink of wine or I could have this little drink or that little drink. I knew I couldn't get drunk, but that, well, that was okay. God used this verse to storm into me that, okay, yeah, you're not going to go to hell because you do that. I'm not going to love you any more or any less whether you do it or whether you don't. But that what you're doing, if you are strong enough, is it something that might be an offense to someone else, a stumbling block from someone else? And folks, all I can say is all you got to do is look around this world. If anybody is so blinded that they can't see, what a stumbling block that alcohol is and, and, and the destruction that it's brought. It's not that that one drink for you is going to bring destruction, but what about those others? What about those others? He says, it is good neither to eat flesh nor drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother, where somebody else stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, the truth is, is that in many things, God speaks to us. But I'm saying he is showing us clearly in this miracle here that as Christians, we do have rights and, and privileges and liberties and freedoms and, and all those things that are ours. We're not Christians because we follow perfectly this set of rules and, and regulations and do this and don't do this. We're saved by the grace of God because he loved us so much. Many of those things, we do have those things. But may I just remind you that just as surely there are responsibilities that come with those things. 
as Christians, we shouldn't hesitate to give offense when it comes to standing on God's word and the gospel. It will be offensive to some. But time and again, he shows us that we should avoid giving needless offense just for our own satisfaction so that we can exercise some liberty or some freedom that we have. You see, how great, how great was his claim, his claim that as children we're free. How great was his concern lest we should offend. How great was his care. Even here in all of this, remember Peter's the one that's involved with him. Notice the very last words there. Give them for me and thee. <laughs> for me and thee. You know, we'll never know the side of eternity how many times that God has met the needs in your life and in my life in all of his followers. Here we just have another great example of his compassion, of his kindness, of his care for his own. What grace that Jesus would even associate himself with us. But yet, he associates with us in the greatest offense of all in sin. He also said, for thee, I do this for you. Here he says, for me and thee, lest we should offend. How great was his care? Well, I can't help but noticing that when I read here about what Jesus was doing to pay a debt that he didn't have to pay, but to pay this debt for himself and for Peter, that it was just a shadow of the debt that Peter did owe and that the Lord would be delivering him from, that he would soon pay Peter's eternal debt as he paid your debt and my debt when he hung upon Calvary. What was the motive behind this phenomenally miraculous event that cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, be accredited to man? What's the motive behind the miracle? Lest we should offend. Lest we should offend. The truth of this whole account is that Jesus didn't have to, but he did. He did it not of necessity, but to prevent the possibility of him and Peter offending someone else. He didn't have to pay the temple tribute, but he did because of his concern for others. He didn't have to die for sinners, but he did because of his love and his concern for you and for every lost sinner. He didn't have to die for you. He did because he loved you that much. And Christian, how much love and concern do we have for others? Is it enough that you're willing to do or not do what you do 
lest we should offend them? Are you more concerned about your rights, your liberties, or are you more concerned about bringing offense to someone else? All these questions must be asked when we look at this miracle because I believe as we look at all we see here that the motive behind this miracle, the purpose, the reason that Jesus did it wasn't because of necessity that he had to. It was all accomplished lest we should offend. Father, we thank you today as we read these verses and as we see this wonderful, miraculous event. Lord, that you've put it there in your word. You performed it that day. But Lord, you didn't have to have it recorded in your word for us today, but you did. You gave it to us. So I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to take and receive from this today both the phenomenal encouragement that should come to us, Lord, that you're there for us. You're just as concerned for us. All that you did there, you did because of your concern. But I also pray that the message would challenge us, that, Lord, we should have that same mind, lest we should offend them. Help us, Lord. Help us to be concerned. Help us to show the same kind of love and concern for those around us that you've shown for us. We give you the praise and thanks for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.